0: Well, good morning. Ah, it's wonderful. I don't know about you. uh, I know we've only been back for a few weeks, but it's already starting to feel like we were never apart. Is that just me? It's probably just me. Maybe because I've done twice as many church services as you guys. We'll find out. Well, that was off script. Uh, (laughs) Well, we continue on with our Christmas series this morning. And it's my pleasure to bring you the second installment. And our series, if you haven't gathered already, is called Christmas from Start to Finish. And that means more than just the birth narrative of Jesus. It means the prophecies, the preparation, the plan, and every step that it took for Christmas to be possible. And so last week, John began with Genesis 15. And I hope that you enjoyed that. And he titled it, The Plan. It was like the very beginning and now I pick up with uh, with a passage in Second Samuel called the Preparation. And you may be wondering, Second Samuel—that seems pretty far through a, a book or two books in order to to start. It's a weird place to start. But you may not be aware that First and Second Samuel were initially one scroll one writing put together that was then separated as it got kind of longer through translation. A whole bunch of things happened. And so actually what we come to today is not a random point in the second book in a a story divided into two, but actually the climax of one story, the peak point of one book. We're drawing near to the top of the mountain. I don't know if any of you have done much hiking. Uh, I've done a very small amount. And it is, it is grueling work. It, hey, don't you laugh. It is, it is difficult work. You, you, your elevated heart rate, you're breathing heavily, your muscles are screaming as you climb a mountain. And that's what hiking seems to be all about. So it seems to be the point of it. But in actuality, the purpose is usually found not in the, the pain and the suffering, but in the arrival at the top of the mountain in the arrival at the peak where you can stop you can catch your breath and you can look over all that you have climbed and as we pick up in second samuel this morning we come to a very similar moment and it would be easy for us to pass over it because what has just come before has been very fast paced has been very exciting David has been battling God's enemies and he has won war after war, battle after battle and it's been super exciting and all of a sudden the narrative slows down into conversation between David and God. And like a hiker who has made it to the top of the hill and is already thinking of the journey down, if we're not careful, we can miss it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment, we're going to read a pretty significant portion of Second Samuel chapter 7, and as we do, I would encourage you to listen carefully, to look from the top of the mountain at where we have arrived, after all that God has done, after all of the enemies that David has defeated with God's help. We find ourselves in Second Samuel, we're going to read from verse 1 to 21, if you would like to, I would encourage you to read the rest in your week. But here we go. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with the, all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded, To shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. We ask that as we we stop and we dwell in it, as we rest and and listen, that you would be speaking to us, speaking to our hearts, challenging us and growing us in a new way. So Lord, be present in your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed that reading. I'm sure many of you may already be thinking of how this might fit into the Christmas narrative. It might be on the, uh, in the front of your mind, but I would ask you to put that aside for a moment. We're going to take a step back and let's have a look at how it fits first into the book of Samuel. As I mentioned before, prior to these passages, Sam, uh, David has been on a rampage He's been defeating the enemies of Israel. But in actuality, even before that, uh, Israel has been coming into their new land, the promised land, the place that was assured that they would enter. And so after a period of leaders in judges, some bad and some worse, uh, we now find ourselves in a period where, where there are still wars. There are still battles to be fought. And Samuel the prophet is the leader of Israel. But the people come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. We want someone to rule over us. And at first Samuel is cut to heart because he's their leader. And it's not particularly fun to hear that they don't want you to be their leader. But God responds to Samuel and says to him in 1 Samuel 8 verse 7, It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And so this becomes the theme, the challenge of the book of Samuel. A conflict between what the people want and what God wants. Between God's authority and that of man. Later in that same chapter, the people call out to Samuel again because he still hasn't given them a king. And they say, we want a king over us, then we will be like all the other nations. With a king to lead us and to go out and fight our battles. Do you see the problem do you see what they've done then we will be like all the other nations but Israel is not called to be like the other nations They're called to be set apart and in Deuteronomy 18 verse 9, as as God lays down the way that they should behave with uh, the religious practices of the people around them, God says, do not imitate the detestable ways of the nations around you, of the nations in the land. Israel is to be different, is to be seen as different to the nations that they live around and yet they want a king so that they can be just like them. And so God chooses a king for the people. He chooses someone to rule over them, but not according to his desire, but according to the desires of the people. The people want a king of great authority, but God wants a king who will follow his authority. And so enters... King Saul. And he seems like a great king. He seems like he's got a little covered. He's conquering the nations. He's doing everything right. But the very first decree that God gives him, he fails to fulfill. The very first thing that God tells Saul to do, he doesn't do. And instead of waiting for Samuel, he sacrifices in his own timing. And so Saul shows himself to be a ruler who could never submit fully to God's authority. So then comes in David, the second king, the youngest son, a shepherd boy. Uh, his, his, his heart is after God and God chooses him not according to man's eyes but according to God's own. And so, so David becomes the redeeming factor of this kingly line. And so David kills Goliath. And then he he flees from Saul as Saul wants to harm him. And then he spares Saul's life even though he could take it. And then he still mourns Saul's death after he's gone. And then he battles the nations around and continually wins with God's help. He shows himself to be a king worthy of his role. And finally David comes and finds rest. He's finally defeated the enemies that were pressing in around Israel. Done what the people wanted in a king. And as he begins to sit down in his palace and think, he starts to sound like someone who's just returned from a mission trip overseas. See, when I was in Year 11, I went on a missions trip, and here's a photo, hopefully, of... Oh, it's a bit blurred, but there's myself and my friend Josh hanging out of the waterfall, We're pretty chuffed. Uh, but in Year 11, I went on this short-term missions trip. It was with my school, so it was with my classes. This is falling off. Uh, it was with my class at the time. And... Uh, Man, that's throwing me off. It was a short-term missions trip and, and honestly it was more of an exposure trip because what do you expect a bunch of year 11s to accomplish in two weeks overseas? Nothing, right? <laughs> and it's correct, we didn't accomplish much. But what we did do was get a lot of exposure, uh, get a lot of exposure to the culture and to that place. I got it. Excellent. And so after a, after a fortnight of... <laughs> After a fortnight of sleeping outdoors, of uh, we were sleeping out on an open-air deck under mosquito nets with like dogs fighting underneath us. We were, yeah. uh, we were riding in the backs of utes to get places or the backs of trucks. There were no seatbelts. It was great. Uh, we would uh, re- visit remote villages that didn't have water or electricity and we would have cold showers because where we were staying didn't have any kind of plumbing or any of that kind of good stuff. Uh, it was a big deal for us in year 11. And at the end of it all, the the most profound moment was when we came back, not here, but we went and we stayed in a resort, the kind of place that tourists would stay if they visited. And we saw how the other side lived in that nation. Well, as we stayed in this very nice resort, we were struck by just how luxurious our lives were compared to those we'd just been staying with. And in a similar way, David sits in his palace and he's finally breathing easy and he comes to realise that he lives in a luxurious building. It would be grand, he was a great king. Meanwhile, God's ark, the place that he dwelled, was in a tent. And so David naturally wants to build a house worthy of God, a place for him to reside. And initially, the prophet Uh, The prophet Nathan thinks it's a great idea. But as he walks away and as he goes to sleep, God immediately rebukes him. God immediately tells Nathan, no, this is not the case. And through the first half of this monologue, this monologue from God, one of the longest in the Old Testament, we find that God's greatness is known not through a physical temple, but through a people perhaps any parents in the room, can relate to God's response to David. I don't know, I've heard these words many times. Probably not from my parents, but I've heard them. Uh, You may be familiar with these moments where a child finds something they really want. They really desire this thing. I don't know, it could be a chocolate cake. It could be a a toy as you're walking through Kmart. It could be your phone that's in your pocket or your bag. and your, Your kid really wants that thing. And so they decide that the best strategy is to... Just carry it around for a while. Just be near you with this, this, this Nerf gun that they really want. They're not asking you for it. They're just holding it in the hopes that you'll say yes. And a common response you'll hear from parents is, did I say that you could have that? Did I say you could have that chocolate cake? Did I say you could play on my phone? Did I say you needed another Nerf gun? God's response to David through Nathan is similar. God says, did I say you could build me a house? Did I ever say that I wanted a temple of my own, that I wanted a place to live? Even when I was coming out of Egypt with you, when I was traveling through the wilderness living in a tent, when did I say I wanted a house? David himself may have in mind the way that the nations around him would build grand temples to their gods in order to show the power of their gods. They'd fill them with gold and wealth and all kinds of things as a symbol of their God's power. And although later God does allow Solomon to build a temple, he makes it clear that that God does not intend to be seen through a building. God does not intend to be known only Inside the four walls of a place. When David says, I will build you a home, God responds with these I statements. He says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock. I appointed you ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone, I have cut off your enemies. And then he goes further, picking up on the the promise that we heard about last week, the promise to Abraham. He also says, I will make your name great. I will provide a place for my people. I will plant them so that they have a home of their own and I will give you rest from your enemies. Do you hear the promise? The promise of a people and a land that Abraham received many years before? And as God says this, what he makes clear is that he does not intend to be seen through an extravagant building. He intends to be seen through the people with whom he dwells. God chooses to be known, and he chooses to be known through his people. Jesus applies this very idea in Matthew five, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five fifteen, he says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. God has prepared his people and he has prepared them to be his representative, to be the way that most people will see who he is. And God has done the same for you, his people today. He has prepared you to be his representatives, to be his light to those around so that he may be glorified. Again, Jesus says in John thirteen thirty four, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So our love for each other becomes a symbol of God's love for us, becomes a way for people to know who we are and who God is. And as we live our lives, God has chosen to reveal himself through us. I wonder if you needed to be reminded of that this Christmas, as we come into this time. Maybe as you you go and you plan on spending time with your extended family or even just your close family and there are people there who uh, don't know who God is. There are people there who will stand against you, who will oppose you, who will speak against you because of the hope that you have. Perhaps you needed to be reminded this this Christmas that uh, God has prepared you to be his representative in that place, in that family, to those people. Or maybe as you have end-of-year end of work parties or whatever other functions you have coming up and you spend time with co-workers in a, a more relaxed environment, perhaps there are people there that God has been preparing you to be his representatives, to be bringing glory to him through people who do not yet know him. Perhaps they're people you've been praying for and you've been praying for for a long time and maybe all you do now is pray. Perhaps this morning God is encouraging you to reach out, to step out, to serve and to speak in a new way to those people as his representatives in their lives. Just as God worked through David and the people of Israel to make his greatness known, so too are we reminded that he works through us to make his greatness known. If we are only willing to speak of what he has done in our lives and to act as he would act. In fact, it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, he writes this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, So that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. As we come out of lockdown and as we come into Christmas have you asked God what he's been preparing you to do? Where he's been preparing to send you? What what faces, what deeds, what names, what places he has been preparing you to be his, his representative in? Have you sought out earnestly what God is doing in this new time through you? If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. But that's not it. There's more. because Now we move into the second half of God's reply to David. The first half was his reply about the building and now we have his reply about the future. And so as we move into the second half, we find out that God's greatness is known not through a physical kingdom but through an eternal one. We began our passage this morning with David coming and wanting to build a house for God. He has this grand plan of what he will do. It'll be miraculous. It'll be enormous. He had all the resources he needed. And God flips that idea on its head. He flips that plan upside down and says instead, you won't build me a house, David. I will build you a house. You see, uh, this assurance is needed because in Deuteronomy 17, we find out what a good king looks like for Israel. And as we read about this good king, we find out that a good king not only will lead the people well, but will, will lead for a long time and their descendants will lead also. It will be a generational leadership. And here's David sitting on a recently vacated throne, sitting on a seat that used to belong to a, a man he used to serve, having just mourned the loss of his king and his close friend who was the king's heir. And so David finds himself in a position of wondering, is this my throne to keep? And perhaps he's wondering that especially because he's just offered God a house when God doesn't even want a house. Well, well, God reassures him. He reassures David in the form of a covenant and it's a massive covenant. It's the continuation of the Abrahamic plan from last week, but it adds so much more. It's one of the the most pivotal moments in the Old Testament. God tells David that he will have a kingdom and a house forever. That he will always have someone ruling after him, someone of his bloodline. Fewer things could be more comforting for a king of that day. I mean, not only to hear that you will keep your throne, that's wonderful, seems pretty good, but also that your children will succeed you. Well, that means that your children are going to survive. They're going to be raised up probably pretty good and they will experience all the blessings that you had yourself. And so David has this extensive response of joy. We read just a small part of it and it makes sense. He's, he's ecstatic. And many of the promises that we read in this section are fulfilled in Solomon and subsequent mediocre kings after him. But God is preparing far more than just a son, than just a son to succeed the throne. What he's actually preparing is a far greater king, a far greater king who will rule ahead. And this is where we get to the, the, the Jesus' anticipation part, so we can, we can get that back now. I'm going to give you just seven, just seven, only seven ways that God is preparing for Jesus here. We're gonna go rapid fire. First of all, we read in the genealogy of Matthew one that Jesus is of the lineage of David. Like he, he's a descendant of David. That's number one. Number two, we read that just as, as God promised to raise up David's offspring, so too God raises up Jesus from the dead. Number three, Solomon built a literal temple for God, but Jesus' own body was God's temple. Jesus raised up the temple of his body. Number four, in Revelation three twenty-one, we read that Jesus sits on the throne of God and in Hebrews 1, verse 8, number 5, we read that his kingdom will last forever. All throughout the Gospels, we read, number 6, that Jesus is the Son of God and before the birth of Jesus, in Luke 1, 35, we read that it's the Holy Spirit who conceives Jesus, making God his Father. In just a few verses, we have seven things preparing the way for Jesus. Seven things preparing the way for the Saviour. Now that's a lot of preparation for one promise. There's a fun little game I used to, I used to play, especially when camping, when you got bored camping and there wasn't much to do, maybe on rainy days. It was like a, a rendition of Pictionary where you would scribble lines all over a piece of paper and you'd pass it to the next person, and they'd give you one, and the objective was to try and make some kind of picture out of the mess you were handed. I don't know if anybody else did that. It was fun. And so you'd be looking at this mess of scribbles, trying to think, how can I connect these lines? Or how can I add to them to make something out of this? And just as you were starting to get a picture of what you were going to make, the person would look over and think, I could make something out of that. Let me make it harder. And they'd put some new lines through it, and you'd have to start all over again. You'd have to plan with the new mess that you were given. But as we look at God's promise to David here, I hope you see that one thing is abundantly clear. Jesus is not God's plan B. Jesus is not the, there's more scribbles, now what do I do? If anything, Jesus is God's plan B for the creation of the world. His plan to restore his people and to make them holy and blameless. God was always preparing the way for Jesus to come. Where God told David that his sons would be punished for their wrongdoings, and they were, Jesus was punished for our wrongdoings, And it's because Jesus was punished on behalf of us that Paul is able to write in Colossians 1, 13-14 that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For those who believe in Jesus, the invitation is to be part of this eternal kingdom, part of this everlasting kingdom, one that will not fade away. What God had prepared with David, accomplished with Jesus, he now offers to us. Jesus says in John 14, 1-4, Do not let your hearts be troubled. troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. Maybe after a season of COVID, you're sick of your own room. You're sick of your own space. Well, Jesus is preparing a good room for you in his Father's house. Maybe after the the struggles of the last few years or whatever's been going on in your own personal life, you're struggling to find a reason for joy. Maybe all that has happened has overcome you. Well, know this morning that you can find joy in the fact that God is, has and is preparing a place for you in his kingdom, in his house, one that will not fade away, one that was assured many years ago, accomplished in Jesus and is free for those who would believe. This morning, as we reflect on God's word, I hope that you know that God is prepared. That God is prepared from way before until now. He was preparing a way for Jesus at Christmas to come. He was preparing a way for us to be restored to him. And he was preparing a place for us in his kingdom. So God has prepared a people You are his people, his representatives, his hands, his feet and he is preparing things, people, places for you to serve and to honour him. He's prepared a promise in the form of a saviour, one who takes away our sin, our regret, our mistakes and makes us right. And he's prepared us a place in his kingdom to be with him that will last forever. And so if you believe that with me, then let us respond as David does. Let us respond with joyful praise to God in prayer and in song. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are prepared. That you are not caught off guard by the the changing of the days, of the seasons. Lord, that you are not caught off guard by our mistakes, by our sins but that you are prepared and that you are preparing a life for us with you. So Lord, we ask that you would lead us in your way. Lead us to good works. Lead us to bring glory to you, to your Son, so that we can one day spend eternity with you. We pray this in your name. Amen.